This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Launchpad on Business Radio. Hello and welcome. You're listening to Launchpad here on Business Radio, Sirius XM 132. I'm Rob Conivier, a founder and managing director at Shasta Ventures, a leading venture capital firm where we focus on investing in early stage companies. So I'm really excited about today's guest. I have Mike Radenbaugh. He is the founder and CEO at aptly named Rad Power Bikes. It's the largest and fastest growing e-bike brand in the United States. Mike, thank you so much for joining me today. Hey, thanks, Rob. Excited to be with you. Well, I'm I'm really excited to hear your story today because there aren't too many stories of people starting companies in high school and then becoming worth um, you know a significant amount of money, crossing through the hundred million dollar mark. It, it's pretty remarkable. So as we get into that, uh, just want to say really excited to to chat today. And uh, maybe we could just start by just explain what is Rad Power Bikes for people that aren't familiar with Rad Power Bikes. So, so I got into this e-bike business like you just shared, Rob. When I was 15 years old, and and um, I did it for myself at first. I built my first e-bike just to get to high school and back on kind of this rural, rugged, 16-mile commute, and I had a car that was always breaking down. So, e-bikes for me have always been this mobility, you know, product, this mobility journey, and. It just so happened a lot of my neighbors and people in the region just also also were excited about e-bikes and and um, were were not so excited about the sticker shock that they saw with e-bikes on you know the shelves of you know e- you know bike stores at that time and so so I started building them one at a time for people and that's con- you know sixteen years later we're like you said the largest electric bike company in North America we're also the first kind of large direct to consumer electric bike company and that's that's something we've taken across borders now or in 28 countries in Europe. That's actually one of our fastest growing channels in the business. And, and, um, and it's just kind of this model's proven itself over time that my obsession and passion around e-bikes, I always believed that it was kind of this future form of mobility and, and paired with this innovative direct to consumer model and an innovative approach to product that is more utilitarian and mobility focused. It's, produce this business that's cross borders and, and grown like hotcakes. Yeah, well, I think that's that's something you kind of skipped over pretty quickly, the direct to consumer model, which now that you mention it, it seems like it's kind of unusual in the bike industry period because there are these multiple tiers of distribution and you're going direct to consumer. How, how does that work? Does that mean that anybody in the US today could go to your website, buy the bike and it'll either get delivered or shipped to them? So there's a few ways now. In, in the early days of Rad, it was all direct to doorstep and the bike would arrive in a box. And over the last five or six years, we've sort of been innovating on this direct to consumer model with a various click to brick opportunities for consumers. So what that means is that now customers can come to our website and in, I think now 50 to 60% of the United States and, and growing in Canada, soon to grow in Europe, we have Rad Mobile Service or we have rad retail stores and you have the same sort of curated uh, company owned experience, but you have it either dropped off your doorstep uh, in a rad van, or you can go to one of our company owned local retailers uh, to try the bikes there in person and get service, purchase accessories, you know, be, feel like maybe physically more part of that community. 
Yeah, well, I think um, one of the things when you when you're um, a founder and you build a company, you work with a PR team and they kind of teach you about how to handle certain questions. But I'm going to ask you a question anyways, kind of around that front. And what I'm curious about is, are there any other bike brands, forget whether it's e-bike or regular bike, that have gone direct to consumer? Or do they almost all go into the retail bike shop model where you walk into the, the bike shop, maybe it's Mike's Bikes or something like that down in Palo Alto, California, and they say, oh, you're my friend, I'll give you a great deal. And then you think about the layers of margin that have to happen there. Um, has anybody else done this? Are there examples? There, there's been success stories with direct to consumer in the traditional non-electric bike space. And the same sort of value proposition that, that RAD represents is, can be seen in some of the, those businesses that have gone direct to consumer with traditional pedal, pedal only products. And, uh, and so, so you're, you're dead on. It's just, I think it's kind of the future form of, of shopping for e-bikes. And, and I think our growth surely you know, dictates that sort of the way things are headed. And you've seen major both North America and European incumbent e-bike manufacturers start to try to pivot to the omni-channel some of them with kind of mixed success. And I think it's proved to be pretty challenging to do both things well, serve a, you know, a, a strong you know, independent bike dealership base and service the customer direct to consumer through e-commerce or company owned vans or stores. Yeah, and when you think about the layers of margin, handling inventory, seasonality, all these issues with the multi-layer model, I hadn't really thought it, about it a lot until we started chatting now and you talk about the direct to consumer piece. I found in the past, and, and you're, you know, you're an avid mountain biker as well as I understand, like captain of your high school mountain biking team. And I've found that there's a brand I love. I love Rocky Mountain. I also love Santa Cruz. And I just want to order it online and have it sent to me. And then I get sent to a dealer and then I call the dealer and they're like, well, we stopped carrying them. And the user experience, like it's hard to build a real brand affinity when you're separated from your customer as opposed to servicing them directly. And then the layers of margin, when you think about something that is expensive as an e-bike, although you're bringing the cost down dramatically, but you're getting into the you know, $1,000 to $3,000 price point, you know, if you have to give a dealer 30%, 30 points of margin, it becomes a much, much less interesting business for you to build. And also you don't even have the money to innovate on the product. So, you know, kind of, Looking at this, there's a whole series of things that you know I think about, and I, I really have admired in, in what you've built after moving up to Seattle and learning about you is the the branding on Rad, and I'm curious how you think about it because when you go to the website, you look and there's like multiple styles of bike, but they have a common design language. And where does the name come from? How do you pick the colors? Just stuff like that around that brand experience. The initial innovation in the business was around the product, and it was about, you know, I, I had this kind of early identification, and it was this, people wanted high power, they wanted comfort, they wanted utility, they wanted to have a throttle. You know, most most e-bikes, when I got started in this business, were augmented exercise devices, and they didn't do it very well. And, you know, small, short range, didn't have very much power. So you kind of had, in some ways, kind of the worst of both worlds in some of these kind of early um, uh, you know, e-bikes are on the market. And so power is in the name. And, you know, my, my mom actually came up with this name. And I think when I was 
I probably tell this story a little bit too much internally and, and uh, bless my mom's heart. But I think when she told it to me when I was a 15 year old, I was like, mom, that's a silly name. I'm not going to call it rad power bikes, but, but it really did stick. And uh, I think it's a little bit peculiar and a little bit, you know, ear catching and, and, uh, and it really does represent the business well, which is, you know, it's, it's a little bit of an O'Day to my last name, but it's got more to do with that, the old BMX movie uh, called rad about, you know, you know, bicycle, you're taking over the world and, and, uh, yeah, no, that's, just, that's very cool. I, I wonder whether your mom has any idea how much branding firms cost, you know, has she ever come back to you and said, Hey, Mike, you know, at the Thanksgiving dinner table, like, Hey, did you know that people spend 50, a hundred, $200,000 on branding? Has she ever mentioned that to you? No, but I, the, the only way that I've found her repair so far is she's always outfitted with the newest rad power bike. And, uh, and so I, I've already told her, I told her over a lifetime of, uh, of, of rad power bikes as we launch new models and, you know, we just launched a new, uh, you know, extra comfort saddle. And so she's got a new super comfortable saddle on her bike. And so, so she's happy as a clam and super proud of what we've built. And, um, but, but, What's her but you know, coming back to request that you haven't, the biggest feature request she has or product request that you haven't delivered yet that she reminds you at it every holiday meal. You know, you know, I think she's she's really excited about more and more comfortable saddles. You know, she, I, I think she's, you know, as kind of an early e-bike adopter herself, she's, uh, she, you know, the more time you spend in the saddle, the more time you realize that, you know, high handlebars and comfortable seats and big tires and more range. And and um, so she's she's always been a fan, always pushing us to build more and more comfortable seats for the bikes. And, uh, and so we've done that. We've built some very non-traditional bike seats that kind of start bridging more into automotive motorcycle scooter space and and that kind of comes back to your question before just around the product philosophy the brand philosophy and and it all stems from this idea that we're not an e-bike brand we're a mobility company we've always built our products to transport people and goods and carrying dogs and loved ones and kids to school and um and so that, that's where the kind of product fundamentals lie today. So we're, we're going to keep kind of reinventing the wheel, so to speak. And, and I think you're going to, you know, you should, customers should expect to see more and more sort of product innovations that blur the lines between different vehicle categories with, with our business always being electric bikes. But, but um, some of the things well, we I love, definitely, are, like- I definitely want to come back to the future of transportation and where these devices go. But I think in the interim, when somebody goes in and you kind of have the brand, I feel like there's this tension between cool and dorky and maybe the name, you know, it, it, it just shouts it's cool, but then you look at it and it's like bright orange and it's like, you know, this big long wagon when you look at it, but then it goes fast. So it has this almost dramatic tension between different elements in it. And I wonder how much of that is intentional or how much is, of that is like somebody, um, ascribing value to some forms of poetry that the author never intended. Uh, I mean, ever since our first e-bike, the Rad Rover, that was our flagship product. It's got these huge tires on it, right? It's, it's this really bold, bold look. It almost, it's like the SUV of e-bikes. And, and so ever since that day, we, you know, there's been a lot of people that, you know, say that that bike's never going to sell direct to consumers, not going to work. You know, we're obviously well past, you know, proving out the, both the model and the success. The Rad Rover is the best-selling electric bike in North America and, and uh, quickly growing in Europe now, but we're going to keep doing stuff like that. This sort of, you know, sometimes it's controversial and, um, and it, you know, kind of pushes the envelope around what people can expect from an e-bike uh, company. 
is a little easier to do that when you have a bunch of different types of units. So you have like a city bike, a cargo bike, a folding bike, an all-terrain bike. So when you look at the lineup, you can see a common design language and brand, but the bikes are actually quite different. So does it give you a bit of freedom to experiment or, or are you kind of careful about that because you're still a growing company? We, we focus on keeping a lean lineup. Um, I, I really believe in freedom from choice for consumers and you know, uh, the brand acting as stewards and, and um, you know, rather than having a hundred different models to choose from and making it more confusing for customers, they're really having a more refined lineup, but, but we have so much wonderful data flowing in from the customer and, and we, we use that to create new innovations. So, so I would just say like right now, the pipeline of new products is tremendously exciting and I, and I can't share details on that today, but, but um, you know, we're definitely not stopping with the lineup we have today. I think that over time, parts of our lineup will be retired and, um, you know, refined and completely net new products are going to be launched? Well, I think this freedom from choice is a really interesting concept. And it's something that I see with a lot of the companies that I work with at Shasta is on one hand, you have this desire to provide all these options or things that people can decide between. And I think what you've done is kind of smart because it's like, well, I'm a city bike or a cargo bike or like you can figure out pretty quickly, like, am I in the zone? And this is the product that does that zone. But a lot of people forget that once consumers start to get confused or they're like, oh, I need to make a choice. Boy, this is a big choice. They kind of go away and they just get some other shiny object catches their attention and they move on. And is, is this something that you just knew out of the gate or is it something you learned along the way through trial and error that you needed to kind of both simplify at the same time while you know providing options? It's been a little bit of both, Rob the kind of kind of one of the first fundamental learnings on that journey around freedom from choice was just that every customer was asking me for bigger and bigger tires on their bikes. And, and so we started to develop these themes that, that, um, you know, we doubled down on when we launched that Rad Rover, kind of our first flagship bike, it's got four inch wide bike tires. <laughs> looks more like a motorcycle in some ways, right? But it still has pedals and Yeah. A third of a foot. Okay. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, the, you know, the, the, then the, the learnings that came though were as we as we produced that one model in only one frame size and in black and white, sort of the Ford Model T model in a sense. There, we we produced so many of them in the first year and so many of them in the second year that we started to there was real supply chain advantages to that standardization, both from a cost perspective to the company and a cost perspective to the customer. So. So the standardization has been really a, a key learning that, that uh, you know, I can't go and say when I was a teenager, I knew that this was, you know, the, the path forward, but the direct to consumer model combined with listening to the customer, what the customer really wants, creating value innovated products. That's just created all these oh, kind of amazing tailwinds. Let's stick, a, let's stick a pin in that for a moment. If you're just tuning in, I'm Rob Connybeer and you're listening to Launchpad on SiriusXM's Business Radio, Channel 132. And I am on Zoom right now with Mike Radenbaugh, the founder and CEO of aptly named Rad Power Bikes. So no, listening to the consumer though, you're, you're talking about these kind of this tension, I think that entrepreneurs think about, which is you listen to them, but then you also, you take that and you might not give them what they explicitly ask for. If you understand what I mean, like, color choice, for example, et cetera. So you're kind of framing it for them. And 
you know, how else do you do it other than just color in terms of what you're doing? Is it just limiting how many different SKUs you have? Oh, it goes, it goes so deep into the whole product development process, right? I mean, starting from design component selection. I mean, it's like we have a standardized accessory framework. So if we have the same accessories that fit on all the bikes universally. And so it, it really does begin in the early stages, you know, two years, three years before a product shows up on the street, it's gone through this you know, rigorous process. It's now, I think the last time you and I caught up maybe a month ago, it was a 40% team. Now it's a 50% team just doing product development activities, right? And so that's, this is industrial wow. designers and MEs and EEs. And, and, um, and so we've got a lot in store, but, but it, all, it all is a blend of what we've learned from the customer. And then through our own obsessions and being just all in on e-bikes. And, uh, and I think it kind of takes that, you have to, you have to build a business like this with your heart. And, and for me, it stems all the way back to being a teenager starting to build e-bikes. And, 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 and that's now, that's now 400 plus people on our team going to, you know, you know, nearly doubling by the end of this year. And all those people embody those, those values and that spirit of innovation. So, so I think that the, the, the real answer to your question is it's a blend. It's a blend of like knowing your customer, spending a lot of time with your customer. I sometimes secret shop in our retail stores and, and spend time, you know, on, with, on um, retail store. You, you went with like a wig or something or a hat and glasses because you've got a pretty distinctive look and, you know, your name is on the bike. So how do you go in to be a secret shopper? No, my, 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 my favorite one is actually when I'm outside of a, you know, a co-op or a, a you know, market shit. I put putting groceries in the back of my rad wagon to heading home and, and, uh, you know, somebody will walk by on the street and say, Oh, how do you like that bike? That's one of the, one of those rad power bikes. Right. And, uh, and, uh, so I always feel a little guilty. And so I've just, I've come to just explain to them, actually, you know, I work for the company. I love the product. Um, that's true. And, and, and so that's always a fun moment. And we always yep. dig in with, you know, at least 10 minutes of dialogue there. So that's kind of how you do it. It sounds like it's not just on the employees, but it's also the customers that are coming through that are probably a lot less likely to know kind of who you are or that background, et cetera. Yeah, we, we have a we have a voice of the customer internal process now and kind of team members and te a team member focused on just funneling all this great information. In. And then we're, you know, part of that person's work is going to be around making sure we have sort of the, you know, the Costco model where even if you're in, you know, quote unquote corporate or working in management or, or you're not working customer facing, you spend time working customer facing every single year. And, and so, so we're really trying to be intentional about maintaining that connection with the customer. I think that's good. But the moment that you said the Costco model, I thought you might mean that you could only buy five red power wagons in a package at once and then you'd have to share them with your family and friends. So well, so, where, where my mind went was we, uh, well, maybe one day we'll offer free snacks in our stores, who knows, but. So. Yeah, no, that's, it, it, so you talked about the accessory business and I was thinking, I was imagining your mom and her fascination with like, you know, different things you could improve. One of them being like a more comfortable saddle. So is that one of the things like people can go in and like have things they attach to the bike or saddles or, you know, that after they go and they've bought the bike so that you've kind of got them from a conversion point of view where they're buying a bike. And then it's about either the upsell or bringing them back later on because I've, I've seen very regular email trip marketing campaigns that, that you do. Don't, don't get me wrong. I mean, we've, we've been incredibly lucky as a business that the customers have been so 
you know, welcoming, thankful, and proud to be Rad Power Bikes owners. They're 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 what fuel this business, and and um, and and so you know they all have unique applications and unique ways that you, they're using the product. And so part part of that, like really listening to the customer, is like we know that they want to carry their dogs with them on their bikes. We know that they want to carry their kids. They want to pick up groceries. They want to have exercise, and then. Um, you know, good exercise experience. And, and we also have learned that they want connectivity and, and uh, you know, sort of a platform to both connect as a community um, and, and kind of, you know, provide more capabilities on their product, like security and, um, you know, GPS tracking, things like that for, for on the e-bike. So that's sort of one of the next journeys that this company has, has been kind of paving a path on is going from being a really great hardware business to also being a really great software business technology company. Yeah. So how does that work? Because one of the things that I've seen is the, the, the bike experience is great, but it does have, I wouldn't say a steep learning curve, but there are a few things people need to explain. Like it does have a throttle and the way in which you, you know, it, it, it might um, limit how much power assist and stuff you get. Like there, there's that initial learning experience. What are the things that you'd like to improve? Like when you think about this user experience when somebody gets on the bike for the first time. Yeah, yeah. There's there's a, there's a lot that's you know ongoing right now, but it's a from, from a rider education perspective. You know, our retail stores and our mobile vans have been really helpful in that way. Just because for there's a whole group of customers, and let's just say half of our customers can you know be totally comfortable buying online, having it shipped to doorstep, and um, and there's a whole nother group that really wants that in-person experience. So just being able to get on the product and try it beforehand, try different models. I think that that's an important thing for customers. So that, that's more on the business model side, but specifically on the, on the product and around making the product more ergonomic, making the experience for customers more, more seamless. It, you know, we, we just take a, we take a lot of cues from consumer products, like the revolutionary user interface that was, you know, Apple products, when the touchscreen came out, we take it from the 65 cup holders that are in modern minivans nowadays and that people want utility and, uh, and the ability to you know, carry a drink along with them. So it's, it's a lot of stuff like this from the kind of consumer product space that we're trying to integrate into our e-bikes. And we're able to do that, I think, better than, 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 than anyone else in this space because of this direct consumer model. We're not tied to any historical um, um, you know, relationships or historical, like a bike needs to look like a bike. We can create products that really do knock the socks off customers. And that's, um, and those are just a couple of fun examples of kind of where, where our heads are at. Yeah. And how do you actually gather that feedback? So is it surveys? Is it phone calls? Is it, uh, videos where you watch people ride off the bike for the first time? How does that work? How do you get the information? The, the, the customer is so passionate at, at RAD, right? They, the, the product tends to be pretty transformative. I know it was for me and, and a lot of our early customers, and that's stood true today uh, as hundreds of thousands of new RAD riders join us each year. And, and, um, and you know, I, I think the, the uh, kind of fundamental here is we send out surveys. Like surveys have been big for the business. And and the, the survey response rate because of that passion, like people really feel part of this business because they are. And those surveys fuel the innovation and the improvements, both in our customer service and in our product. And, uh, you know, everything we do as a business, where we're putting our retail stores, where we're putting new vans. So, so just to give you a sense, right, we'll send out a survey. Our surveys are usually 
fairly extensive and they, they're not quick surveys to fill out. It can take 10, 15, 20 minutes for some of the surveys. And um, that's how much our customers care. And we, we you know, I can't thank them enough for that. And those surveys are gonna keep coming. And you know, that, that's one example, but this voice of the customer kind of process is a, it's, it's a well-known one now across hyper growth, you know, e-commerce startups and, and big businesses alike. And so we're, we're taking best practices and also, you know, bringing people on board that have lived this journey at, at, at scale. Yeah, well, this has been really a great glimpse into what you're doing with Rad Power Bikes. And, um, you know, Mike, I have to say it's, it's, it is, I'm sure you've heard this a million times, rad to have you with me. Thanks. Thanks, Rob. <laughs> <laughs> so in the, the first half of the show, we spent a lot of time just talking about the business, the user experience, and it's clear that you've developed in a short period of time, a lot of sophistication about building a direct to consumer business because you have to build the technology, you have to figure out what the consumer wants, you have to figure out channels of distribution. There's just so much that's involved in building a business and it's in the bike industry, which is one of the most competitive businesses. And it's one where, you know, I think it's the childhood dream of a lot of people to build a bike company to a certain extent. It's like building a car company or a space company. It's like up there with that. And what I'm particularly fascinated by is, um, I didn't realize this when we first met, but this, this connection to Northern California is pretty interesting. I drove through your hometown, uh, Garberville, California for the first time, despite living in California for 23 years, drove up 101 through where all the redwoods are in California, and I guess all the off the grid pot farms as well. And it's, it's, it's this place where you, you grew up. And I'm just curious, um, you know, what was that like? And, you know, was there something that happened when you grew up where you were able to just learn rapidly from other people? I, I don't know what it, what it is or what it was, whether it's your parents or people you went to school with. So that, that part of Northern California is a tremendously special place, right? These towering redwood trees and I mean, it's kind of, it was just a beautiful natural place. And, and so I grew up on mountain bikes and I grew up trail running and, and, um, and, you know, grew up spending my time on the river. I mean, grew up as a country kid. And, and, um, and so you, grew, you I think you developed some resourcefulness. My, my dad was a carpenter. My mom was a super hardworking nurse. And so I learned you know, a lot of discipline from them and, and, um, how to work with my hands. And, and so I think that was helpful, but more importantly, I you know, potentially is not to discount their wonderful parenting, but I live 16 miles away from my high school and it was super hilly and I couldn't afford to keep my car running. So an e-bike, you know, like I grew up installing solar panels and, you know, really believing in alternative energy and, and, um, and started becoming fascinated with electric vehicles. And so I built my own e-bike to get to school because I wanted that independence and we didn't have a bus service that went to, went to my house because it was so rural. So it was not a necessity, sort of resourcefulness. Um, and that's proven to be really important as we've gone into, you know, these, these you know, each stage of hyper growth has come with it, the sort of need to be resourceful and new in different ways. So when you were designing that bike, did you just design one? Somehow I suspect you designed probably like five or 10 from spare parts and like Japanese motorcycle starter motors and stuff like that. Like what, what did that environment look like? Was it a garage somewhere or... Yeah, this, this was a, so where I did all my e-bike tinkering was, it was a, um, an old shed with a kind of makeshift roof made out of a tarp 
over a, a pile of firewood and then I'd build the e-bikes <laughs> a little like homemade table that was sitting next to that pile of firewood. So it was, you know, and I ran an extension cord over to run the soldering iron. So, so it was, you know, I like to say it was a garage built business, but it's really, it's, you know, it was really a, a woodshed is a better way to think of it. Yeah. So, so you built it in the woodshed and at what point when you were building these, did you start to dream of building a business as opposed to just building something to get you to school and back? Really just the product market fit hit after that first bike. I'd like park it outside of the radio shack or, you know, the grocery store in town and everyone would ask me about it walking by. And some people I knew because it was a small town and some people I didn't and we would just strike a conversation. And so that's when it took off was just people started asking me a lot of questions about it. There was a lot of interest. And I think the, you know, the, you know, somebody asked me to build one for them and I was just kind of taken aback at first. And they said, yeah, I guess I could probably do that. And wow, that's probably, how does that negotiation go when somebody asked you to build that first bike? Did you start thinking, okay, how much do I charge them? Or what, what was your thought process at that moment when somebody said, could you build one of these for me? I think I, fired up our old, super old Dell computer with a, you know, a CRT monitor and like got onto Microsoft Word and knocked out a, like a, my first, you know, invoice with a Microsoft Word template. Right? <laughs> and, and, and yeah, no, it was just completely, completely organic like that. That's amazing. And, and uh, how many do you think you sold before you, before you left uh, uh, Garberville? I, I, so, so I sold, I think I sold more right around a hundred bikes or maybe a little bit more. And this was through, you know, through the, my last couple of years of high school, through my you know, years of college. Um, you know, I ended up, I ended up dropping out of grad school um, and, and, you know, kind of moving full, full on into the, into the startup and scale up space. Holy cow. So you really had from the very beginning, it sounds like this clear product market fit, the holy grail that venture capitalists look for with, with startups. You just had people saying, hey, can you build me one? Can you build me one? And I'm guessing then you started to think about, well, if I buy 10 of these parts and I don't go to Radio Shack and I go to some distributor. So you just kind of started to learn it on your own. I'm curious at, at what point did you um, start to say, wow, in order to do this, I actually need to bring investment into the business and how you found those early investors. Yeah, I mean, today I know that it's like, once you have product market fit, it's all about team and capital. And, and you know, I think, I think when we, so, so say for example, in, in uh, 2015, we launched our first crowdfunding campaign on Indiegogo. And at that point, my co-founder Ty Collins joined to, to run the marketing sales customer service side of the business. And a few other areas because we all kind of were spread very thin back then. But um, but I don't, I don't think we had quite realized it at that point. We realized that crowdfunding was probably a really good path because we could get to a lot of customers that could kind of streamline that that process. It would it would help us fundraise to purchase the initial containers of the Rad Rover One, our first flagship bike. And that crowdfunding campaign was super successful. And you know, and today it sounds small because it's a fraction of a day's sales, right? But it was. 350,000 or something like that for, for over a two week period of, of e-bikes sold, which, which was a lot in 2015. It was, it was really exciting. And, but we didn't quite realize the, you know, what it would really take to get the business built, the, you know, make it operationally scalable, bring the, get the right team members in. And um, we ended up doing our first kind of small angel investment 
about six months or maybe four months after the crowdfunding campaign because we we were able to finance those initial containers but then we needed to hire people we needed to you know lease you know facilities we needed to invest in product development and that got really expensive really quickly and, and rightly so because we're trying to create something that's you know to you know today represents it's becoming a really exciting and, and big business still at the early stages but um but yeah so that was the first one just quickly after crowdfunding we realized like the crowdfunding capital is not going to cut it and, and, and how uh, did this overlay with your uh move to seattle kind of the timing and bringing on those early founders i think the decision around seattle was a pretty clear one is like you know i grew up in this totally gorgeous natural landscape and but it's it's i think it's a difficult place to run a business there's no ports nearby like you start to look at logistics and and uh, just even even uh, and, and so so seattle san francisco are at the top of the list and seattle's you know kind of checked all of our boxes and and um and it was great to be in that city because we found those first angel investors hugh holman and and mike gurton who are great um, operators and and uh um entrepreneurs themselves and 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 then, you know, knock on, uh, uh, you know, a couple of years later and, and meeting uh, Mark Vadon and Daryl Cavins and, and uh, two, uh, other, two other fantastic e-commerce entrepreneurs and who have joined, both of them joined our board. And, and um, so Seattle's bared a lot of fruits for the company and, and, um, and the mission of the business. But it sounds like it was a very conscious decision that was driven by where do I want to build the business and where do I want to live? Kind of those combinations. And I suspect cost of living sprinkled in there a little bit as well. Oh, most definitely. Yeah, we started just looking at commercial leases on Craigslist at that time. We didn't have commercial brokers or anything of the sort. And, uh, and so that was, that was a big part of the decision making. So how did you actually meet Hugh and Mike for the first time, these angel investors? You know, our first office, we had this little tiny waterfront industrial space and, and there was an even bigger and kind of more beautiful office right next to ours. And we could, we could hear this person through our walls on sales calls or some, you know, on business calls. And for a year or two being there and kind of getting the business startup, we, we, had, we didn't ever met them, but then we pulled some of our initial bikes out and we were taking pictures of them kind of in front of the water, in front of the business. And and out comes Mike Gurton, who was who was the guy we could hear through the wall, and just so happens he's a super successful <laughs> entrepreneur. And he's like, "What are these bikes all about? How cool are these?" And you know, we just totally hit it off. So talk about an organic kind of you know, we kind of found each other, and you know, they immediately they're like, "You know, who's your attorney? We can help you find a better attorney. Do you, do you have a CPA? Like you know, all the kind of fundamentals that you kind of don't, don't think about. I think when you're a, a young entrepreneur, um, they helped us with it tremendously in the early stages." That's interesting. So it's proximity and and also just that's where being in these entrepreneurial hubs, I think is going to matter. And the sort of serendipity that you're talking about, I think would have been a lot more difficult during a pandemic, for example, than pre-pandemic when people just kind of bump into each other in these ecosystems. Yeah, I think Seattle's just proven for us to be a really great place to build a durable kind of hardware business. And and a lot of the world's best businesses are here. And we just, we just found that to be the case that, you know, maybe, maybe there's this, I think Silicon Valley for a long time, and this is your world more than it is mine, right. But it's gotten more, has more allure for, you know, startup ecosystems, but for our style of business, we found Seattle to be a fantastic hub because the manufacturing prowess, the kind of super high scale, um, you know, growth that's happened here on a number of kind of e-commerce businesses and hardware companies. Yeah, well, the, the names of some of the people you've gotten involved are pretty remarkable. You and I have talked about this before. Mark Fadon and Daryl Cavins are 
really amazing. They have started and executed and built multiple companies that have gone public, been worth billions of dollars. And when you met with them for the first time, I mean, getting them involved, there's a lot of people who want to get them involved with their companies. Were you, were you nervous? And how did you, you know, how did that kind of that courting process work to get them engaged? I mean, I, I kind of, it's almost like meeting the coolest big brother that you never had, you know, in that, in that sense. But I, and I, I met Mark Badon first and, and, um, you know, just, I immediately was taken aback, right. He took us for a tour of, uh, Zoo Lily, which is one of the, you know, local companies that he built and, and sold. And that was, a, it's just a phenomenal business. So he showed us what e-commerce businesses can look like at scale. And, and um, we spent a few months, and that might be an understatement. And what does that setting look like when you're walking around Zulily and you're learning about scale? Like, how does that tour work? Do you show up at the front door and somebody says, "Oh, I'll go get Mark for you," or how does that day unfold? The the, the whole experience it was just everyone was so gracious, right? From the the GC there to the you know different you know executives in the company kind of popping out to say hello as we're kind of walking the office and. And you know what, what I just witnessed in that one day was you know what it takes to build a great business. And that is not just a great product development team. It's not a great, you know, you know, you know, it's not, it's not one person. It is, it is the organization that that creates a great company and um, and makes a resilient company. And that's what you just we could feel walking through those offices. And this is this is well pre-pandemic, and it was just bustling with energy and people and just the the quality of the people was what struck you as much as anything else. Not That's just right. the numbers, not just the scale or size. Yeah, the, it's it comes back to that, right? The, it's people and capital when it's a, when you're going through this hyper growth and and um, it's yeah, it's it's been. I mean, it's it, frankly, it's kind of like brings me to almost brings me to my knees at times just seeing how wonderful and capable this team that we're building is now today. And it's it's a it's like a, it's a small zoo lily today, but we've got huge ambitions. So, so you talked about, I think when, when we first met, you were around 100, 130 people. Now you mentioned you're closing in or past 400 people. What has been the hardest thing for you about scaling? You know, has it been because of the pandemic? It, like hiring is different? Um, or is it just the natural things that happen when you reach certain breakpoints and company size where you as a CEO have to change the way in which you hire and work with people as well? Yeah, so t- today we're you know w- well over 400 people now. We started the, this year even at 300, and it's March you know, 16th today. <laughs> and and, and uh, you know we've got more than 120 open roles now at this time. So 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 the company's growing incredibly quickly, right? We just every Monday morning we have an announcement email that goes out with everyone new that's joined the team, and there was you know there's, there were 16, 17 people this Monday, and that's kind of becoming the norm joining the, the company and. And you know a lot changes uh, for me, and a lot changes for the process. And you know, I think first and foremost, it's you know, we we were lucky we had a part time person come in uh, um, and help us with HR early on in the company, and we really needed that. And we were maybe 20, 25 people at that time, and that, that was a great yeah, experience. Early. Yeah. And so sh- shout out to Shannon real quick. Thank you, Shannon, for for. For your years of service with us, and so, so you know, Shannon was partially retired and came in to help us because she saw this like you know this great need and how quickly we were growing. Fast forward to today, you know, going from having that part-time HR person, um, now we have eight full-time recruiters. Right, we've got 
we've got specific HR, you know, people, team, support leaders for each department, right? We've got a fantastic chief people and culture officer who kind of oversees the whole world of rad people. And, and um, you know, I just, I guess, I, I think that, that you know, I, I might get critiques sometimes for almost over-orienting to training and development, coaching, the recruiting process, but but I just think that it's the engine of the you know or the motor of the business and, and uh, we don't have engines here we only have motors at Rad Power Bikes so yeah. so that, that's so been wanna, a big one for me yeah, yeah so I want to ask about that a bit but if you're just tuning in I'm Rob Cunningham this is Launchpad on Business Radio Sirius XM 132 and I am on Zoom right now with Mike Radenbau the founder and CEO of Rad Power Bikes so what I keep coming back to in our conversations is the level of sophistication that you have with these things. And I've got to believe that there's been a fair amount of coaching that you've had over the years or mentorship. And, you know, what, you know, who gave you perhaps the most, you know, some of the most important advice in say the last five years in terms of building a team and evolving the team and building the culture you want, what did you learn? Every leader that's entered the company has brought something really special, right? And so it's like a single threaded leader running retail or running our service business, right? Running supply chain or quality. Like, so I'd start there. I'd say like, you know, hiring the best and they, you know, they, they bring that to the table and I can, you know, totally they, you know, transpose that on me. And, um, but then, you know, I think next is the board, right? And, and so you talked about Mark Vadon, Daryl Cavins, Hugh Holman and, and, and Stu Nages on, on our board as well. So we have this, really great bouquet of team members there that we spend a lot of time together, right? We have, this is a little bit unconventional. We have monthly board meetings, we have regular skip levels, regular one-on-ones with all my board members. And then outside of just that board um, group, we also have, in my, you know, my, my belief here is the kind of world's best investors around the table too, to support and you know, kind of grow that bouquet. And so where you have Henry Ellenbogen and Corey Scholl from Durable Capital Partners, right, which is, you know, it's, it, have been hugely helpful to us. And then this new round of capital that you've seen, right, where we've had all of our existing investors, Durable, Vulcan, and then, you know, T. Rowe, Fidelity, TPG, and Morgan Stanley all joining the RAD ranks, um, you know, this uh, last fall. Yeah. So looking forward, we, we promised we were going to look forward a little bit because you were eager to talk about the future of mobility. And I'd love to come back to that for the last segment of the show here. When you look at the future of urban mobility and you look at uh, stand-up scooters, you look at e-bikes and you look at different ways of getting around, there's kind of a couple of models. There's private ownership, which is you have your own bike, you have your own scooter, and there's the public shared model. I'm curious how you think about how that split will evolve over the next five to 10 years? The last three years have been really exciting just in the, you know, the, and, and, and um, you know, ripe with fortunes and misfortunes. And you look at the, the boom and bust of the scooter share space and the boom and bust of bike share and, and kind of, you know, globally. And, um, you know, I think last year, some might argue was the year of the electric, you know, pickup truck or semi truck, right? And, and some, some people even compared that last year was the year of the e-bike. And, and I think that, People just have not seen anything yet. The, you know, the power of e-bikes to really democratize electric mobility, and it's almost the you know the smartphone of 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 uh, of, of mobility uh, in the sense of how prolific we believe it'll become. 
and the channels at which you know that product is sold right rad power bikes now is it's a direct to consumer business but we also have a very robust commercial uh, business and so we've pioneered this you know e-bikes for business space as well and um and so is, we believe there's gonna be a mean? couple Does different models for, like, for... think about delivery and that sort of thing or yeah or exactly so, so so you know some of our kind of premier customers there is Domino's who you know, do deliveries with you know hundreds and hundreds of bikes across the, the country um, so food parcel, um, um, just mobility for corporate campuses is another example. So just a plethora of, of uh, opportunities there that we're, we're uh, supporting around commercial use of, of electric bikes. But the channels at which they're, they're purchased, right? Today, we offer consumer financing on our website and we, you can buy it outright. Um, there's also, we also offer split it payments in, in our European business where you can pay half now and half later. But, but the, the methods at which customers will acquire an e-bike from Rad are going to change over time. And I think it'll be a mixture of what we have today. It'll also be a mixture of you know, bikes as a service and subscription. Um, um, oh, so those are models that you're thinking about as well. And I'm, I'm guessing whether you provide the service or whether you supply a fleet. That's exactly right. Yeah. And so, you know, piloting that with commercial customers today and, and, and so, so seeing success there and, and um, you know a lot of a lot of our customers, they it's all about uptime. So if you're using the e-bike in a commercial landscape, it's all about the number of pizzas you can deliver in a day, parcels you can deliver uh, in a week, and and um, and so that's really important for us. And so that's why we also focused on innovation on our services and after after sales support side of of Rad, and that is also going to enable us to offer more you know purchase and ownership options for our customers, including and up to you know, a, a monthly subscription to, to own a rad bike, but we found that customers want to own their bike. And, and so we, we, we believe the model moving forward is a wholly owned model where some applications and some customers might prefer a model that's more of a monthly uh, subscription. And then they can have, an, like, when you think about what's happened with phones and with some other areas, every two or three years, they could get a new bike and trade in the old one effectively. That's right. Yeah, yeah. So we and 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 we see that a lot today. Rad power bikes hold tremendous value in the aftermarket, and um, and so so you know we we see a lot of customers they buy into Rad with maybe a more introductory uh, priced model, uh, maybe more utilitarian like the Rad Runner um, or the Rad Mission, and then they grow up in their life with e-bikes, and maybe their family grows up with our e-bikes too, and so. So we see our customers becoming multi-bike families very quickly and a pretty exciting you know, percentage of our customer base. Well, one other thing that you, you mentioned early in the show is expanding into Europe. And I would love to hear about the thought process for that. We've got about four minutes here. Just the thought process for going to Europe, why go to Europe as opposed to focusing on the US and which markets are you focused on and how it's being received? Most of the large incumbent bike brands in North America are European owned and, and or they're, you know, they started in Europe and then have migrated uh, to, to North America. And, and so the same innovations that have kind of offered customers more value in North America and why customers come to RAD is also working in Europe. And we just were getting a lot of requests from customers all across Europe and, and in the early days. And so um, so just like we, we, you know, we do in the rad team today, when we have an exciting initiative, we believe is going to be a really big business. 
So right now, one of those is give you an example, rad retail stores, or uh, even our, you know, the, you know, making our, our product a connected product. Um, Europe was one of those channels where we just saw this to be, you know, could quickly become a third, a half of maybe more of our business. And so we hired a great single threaded leader there and, and you know, um, Arno Solidin, who he was a leader for Yamaha Motorsports Europe for a long time and a great two wheel fanatic. Um, one of the, he was the first product manager on, uh, the Yamaha e-bikes in the early nineties. Find Arno? Arno found us. Arno's, Arno's wonderful wife somehow saw our, our, uh, our posting online and said, you know, you might just want to, you know, join up with these kind of crazy Seattle, uh, you know, you know, us, uh, e-bike guys. <laughs> wow. And did that come in through, like, did a recruiter screen it or was it an email direct to you or? Yeah, Arno and our European business, this is, you know, three and a half, four year journey now. And um, this was pre in-house recruiters. And so this, you know, I, I think I, I might have been the uh, person screening at that point. I think we had just hired our first um, HR manager, Liz Kearns at that point. And, uh, and so as she, you know, she might have, I, I can't actually remember it so, so many years ago now. Yeah, well, it's interesting, actually, pointing out that Europe, in a lot of ways, is the the center of bike activity in general. So it's almost like re returning home. What's what's been the biggest challenge? Has it been one of the things that I've heard is it's as simple as regionalization. So you have people that speak German, and you have people that speak French, you have people that speak Spanish, etc. What have you found to be the biggest challenge? Localization is super important, and you know, luckily, you know. Uh, you know, Rad Power Bikes, the name and the brand resonates really well there. And, uh, you know, especially in Germany where, where Rad oh. means wheel. And um, oh, that's great. And yeah. And, uh, and, and so, but the localization has been very important. And so we have a, uh, a very international team in Europe. Our headquarters is in Utrecht in the Netherlands. Um, and, and so that's been a really nice hub for us. But, but I guess one of the bigger challenges in Europe for this, the e-bike space is that there's a, um, you know, there's a lot of regulations that are more limiting to the utility of e-bikes there. One of those is the power restrictions. And so the power restrictions in the United States is 750 watts. In Canada, it's 500 watts. In Europe, it's 250 watts. And, and so, so, <laughs> okay. right. yeah, and so, so it results in what we do there, though, is we build a lighter, a slightly lighter product, a product that's more pedalable. Um, and 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 we found that the, the power of our European models are still very utilitarian. The roads are generally flatter there. The cycling infrastructure is generally better. So, so that's, that's been um, just interesting to migrate as well. And, and I would just push other people starting businesses to keep your product lineup as lean as you can early on, because especially as you start to grow geographically like this, right? There's new specifications yeah. and. You know. well, we're going to, we're going to have to wrap. This has been great. I think we could have easily spent three hours today and thank you so much for joining me today. Hey, thank you, Rob. If people can Google red power bikes and either they'll click and click on the regular link or you'll get to pay a little bit of a toll to Google, but you do have this Instagram account that has 20,000 followers and it's in a private account. Um, is that something people should uh, do to follow you or should they go to Twitter or should they go to Red Power Bikes? What's the best way? Yeah, I'd go straight to, straight to our website at radpowerbikes.com here in the United States, radpowerbikes.ca in Canada and radpowerbikes.eu uh, for the European uh, and uh, business in the UK. And and so, yeah, pop up. So thank you very much. Great. Thanks again, Mike, and thank you for joining us. If you missed any of the last hour, you can find it on the SiriusXM app and follow Business Radio on Twitter at SXM Business. 
I'm Rob Conybeer, a founder and managing director at Shasta Ventures, and you've been listening to Launchpad on Business Radio, Sirius XM 132. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play. Oh,